Are we ready to, everyone fairly close to situated? Uh, I'm Abby Livingston. I'm the Washington Bureau Chief of the Texas Tribune. Uh, I'm a native Texan, but I've lived in D.C. about 10 years, and the chief role in my job is I go to the U.S. Capitol several times a week and chase these men through the hallways. And so uh, <laughs> they're usually very good sports. And we and run. So, um, What's Abby? I'm leaving. <laughs> so um, I, I'm really excited about this panel. Um, to one small thing, um, we originally had Congressman Ted Poe from Humble, Texas. Um, he is fighting leukemia. I interviewed him last week. He's very upbeat. Uh, yeah. He is a Republican, and he is determined to beat this. And we are we miss him, but we wish him well in uh, his battle with uh, cancer. And so, um, so to my far left, we have Congressman Henry Henry Cuellar. He was first elected in 04, Is that correct? Um, and uh, all three of these gentlemen are esteemed in their own party, and they have powerful positions that you are just not doled out. And so Mr. Cuellar's um, position of power in DC is he's on the Appropriations Committee, which is one of the most powerful committees. It helps decide how we spend our money. And it's especially crucial right now because we're in the middle of budget negotiations. Um, in the center, we have Congressman Bill Flores. He's a Republican from the, um, oh, and Mr. Cuellar's from San Antonio, goes all the way down to Laredo. Um, Mr. Flores represents uh, Bryan College Station all the way to Waco. And um, he was part of the 20. Excuse me? Part of Boston, oh, too. Part of Boston, too. I do. I'm. Yeah, welcome. <laughs> I'll always take That's that. hard for an Aggie to do. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and he was part of the 2010 wave. And uh, so that is one of the most fascinating classes of Congress. And so, um, and he is the chairman of the Republican Study Committee, which is the largest voting bloc in uh, the Republican Conference. And so he has a really pivotal point when uh, Republicans are trying to count the votes. And to my immediate left is Congressman Joaquin Castro of San Antonio. Uh, he was elected in 2012 and formerly, uh, just like Mr. Cuellar, served in the state ledge. And uh, he is a chief deputy whip, which means he helps Steny Hoyer, the House major or minority whip, count votes. And he was recently uh, assigned to the House Intelligence Committee, which is one of the most serious assignments in Congress. And his leader, Nancy Pelosi, appointed him, and she takes that issue seriously, and uh, they don't appoint people to that committee who they think will spill the beans on national security. So um, all three of these men have attained uh, a certain status within Congress, and so um, they're part of the larger 38-member delegation. Um, Texas is extremely powerful in Congress um, with that many players. We also have seven chairmen. Uh, so it, it's never a dull moment, and the fun part about my job is no matter what issue is happening, I can almost write a story about it every time because there is some Texan in the middle of it, <laughs> uh, either helping solve the problem or sometimes creating the problem. So uh, <laughs> never dull. Um, and so this is, this is a panel about uh, congressional dysfunction. We will touch on some ways that Congress does work. Um, but I just want to start it out, starting with Mr. Cuellar. What is the number one thing that makes your life hard and frustrates you and makes Congress dysfunctional? You know, there are times when you go to Washington and you work and you work and you work. Long hours, as uh, uh, folks know here, early uh, days. Uh, and then at the end of the week, you say, what really happened on that? Because legislation just doesn't move. And that brings up the question, you know, if you look at the founding fathers, that they purposely set up a function of government or a government that's supposed to go slow or have we gotten to the point where we're now in gridlock and so hyper-partisan? 
So at the end of the day, I'm, I'm very focused at the end of the week, uh, if we talk about a week, I want to see some results. And there are times where weeks, you know, you put in so much effort and you stop and say, what really happened? There was a lot of work, but what's the result? So therefore, what I decided to do, as I was talking to you a few minutes ago, I decided to look at the only train that moves, uh, that has to move, uh, which is the appropriation bill. So instead of filing legislation, now I put language in the appropriations or add language in the appropriations. And the appropriators, uh, as a group, and every committee has its own uh, bipartisan, but we're very bipartisan. Uh, examples, you know, there are three Republicans uh, from Texas that are chairmen of subcommittees of appropriations. There's only one Democrat. In fact, I'm the only Democrat in appropriations for Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona, which is our region, Region 6. But uh, we work in a very bipartisan way. When people are talking about setting up walls, uh, which I disagree with, or talking about putting, you know, you know, all these boots on the ground on the border, I'm from the border. Uh, and by the way, I have a complaint about Evan Smith. I told him that, you know, I don't want to be on the border security because it's so negative. I said, put me in something more positive. So what does he do? Puts me in a committee how dysfunctional Congress is. So, so uh, just kidding. Uh, so, so what we do is, for example, I work with John Cobleton, a Republican, where we serve together. We added 55 new immigration judges last year. This year, we're going to add another 55 new immigration judges, but the administration didn't want any new judges this year, which I couldn't understand, but we still got another 25. So examples how in the Appropriations Committee, we work in a very bipartisan way to get things done, very quietly, but very effectively. Mr. Flores, what's the most frustrating thing in your job? Oh, gosh. Well, I came, okay. from, <laughs> I came from the business world, and so, and the reason I ran is I saw some things happening in Congress that, that frustrated me, and I thought somebody's got to go stop those idiots, so I ran for Congress and won. In the business world, when you make a decision, things start to happen and the ship starts to turn. Um, unfortunately, as, as Henry alluded to, uh, sometimes you look back at the end of the week and you've worked really hard and you think you've tried to make a difference and, and something and nothing's happened. So um, the, that, that's frustrating. It's frustrating to the American people. They want to see things happen. Uh, there are a variety of reasons, I think, that this happens. And, you know, and one of my off-the-cuff remarks to some of my town hall meetings is we've got more narcissists per capita than anywhere in the world <laughs> <laughs> living there. Not this, this panel, of course. <laughs> anyway, so uh, the other thing I see, too, for folks that have been in Congress a long time, again, not this panel, but uh, that they get dis disconnected from the real world. And as a result of that, they lose track of the impact of, of what their policies are and the impact that they'll have on the real world. Um, and so I see that quite a bit. Um, and, I, and I wish that, uh, you, know, you know, my view is we ought to have term limits so that you have some constant turnover. Uh, fortunately, the last few years, the, the voters have been the, the uh, turnover experts in, in uh, the House particularly. So those are the things. It's hard to get things done. Uh, it's overly partisan in many cases. Uh, both, and that's, that's, both parties are guilty of that. Both the D's and the R's are guilty of uh, being overly partisan, taking something simple that's, that's right to, uh, for the big bulk of the country and making it into a partisan train wreck. And Mr. Castro. Well, thanks, Abby, for uh, inviting me to be here uh, as part of this panel. Um, I, I agree with, with Bill and with Henry. I think the most frustrating thing for probably everybody in Congress is that the last few sessions of Congress have been among the least productive in American history. In fact, this, the last session, I think, was the least productive in American history. 
And so what Henry is describing is that most of us are very busy for about 10 or 12 hours a day, sometimes more, yeah. uh, meeting with constituents, going to committee meetings, going to caucus meetings, voting on the House floor, fundraising, uh, all sorts of things. Uh, and then you know, everybody is individually busy, but the body as a whole hasn't produced very much. Very so that's a very strange thing to experience. Um, and I think the main culprit is, at this point, gerrymandering uh, that has caused a lot of the gridlock. If you look at most of our congressional districts, particularly in Texas, uh, they're either solidly Democrat or they're solidly Republican. There's only one competitive congressional district in Texas, which is the 23rd, uh, which is her held right now by Will Hurd. And Pete Gallego is, of course, challenging him. Uh, but I guess if it was up to me, you wouldn't have politicians, Republican or Democrat, drawing any more political districts across the country. Uh, Texas or California. I think, I think we should entrust that to independent commissions that can be balanced in terms of the partisanship, uh, but I don't think that politicians should draw the districts anymore. Well, you're the most recent state legislator on this panel. Could you fathom that ever coming to pass in Texas? I could one day. I don't think that it's in the, you know, in the next few years, um, but I think that I believe that if this continues, this gridlock continues, that there will be a movement across the country. And we have seen it come up in certain states. States like California already have that, but more recently, Ohio, I think, I believe the people of Ohio uh, passed an independent commission or something akin to it for their legislative seats. Uh, so I do think that if things continue in this fashion, that you'll see more of a movement for that. Well, and staying on redistricting, Mr. Flores, there are some people who argue, because I'm sure most of you all already know this, but uh, Republicans had the huge wave in 2010, and they didn't just capture the Congress, they captured the state capitals. And so maps were being drawn all over the country that basically have secured the House in your party's favor. Right. But what's happened is, is now so many Republicans are afraid of losing their primary that it's created a tension between the far right and in the um, uh, the more, I guess, pragmatic is the word, uh, Republicans. Do you see this? Do you agree with that theory? It is a problem. When I, when I look at uh, 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 several Republican seats, for instance, uh, the biggest race is always the primary, not the general election. And that follows along the, what Joaquin was saying. So uh, because of that, uh, you have a group of folks in Congress that are always trying to uh, with respect to Republicans, uh, try to find the most conservative way to do something. They're, they're always looking for perfect. And I always tell my constituents when I put that voting card in the slot, I've got a yes option and a no option. I don't have a perfect option. And so the, that group of people will let perfect be the enemy of the good. And as a result of that, sometimes it's hard to get um, a compromised piece of legislation done. A compromise, and I'm sure my fellow panelists up here would agree, is not a dirty word. It is somehow, sometimes the way we get things done. I look at the committee I'm on, for instance, Energy and Commerce. Virtually everything that comes out of my committee is bipartisan, and when it goes to the House floor for a vote, it's it passes on a bipartisan basis. Uh, but there are times when you get into things like what we're doing right now, that's um, working on some funding vehicle for the federal government. That's highly partisan. And uh, on, on my party side of the aisle, we're gonna have some people that wanna fight getting that done because it's not conservative enough. 
You'll have some people on the other side of the aisle fighting because they don't get everything they want. And really, if we could sort of just split off those two pieces, you might be able to get something done so that you don't have a big train wreck here at the end of the fiscal year. Mr. Cuellar, I mean, you're not, um, you're more of a policy guy, but I'm just curious if you um, hear much chatter in the Democratic world about redistricting, because 2018 we'll have governors up for re-election. Like, is there any, do you have a sense of a Democratic plan to get back some seats or where that stands? It's a secret, I can't tell it's you. It's a secret. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Well, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, every year, as long as we have state legislators, uh, drawing the lines, yes, there's going to be an effort. Uh, you'll see more monies on behalf of the Republicans, on behalf of the Democrats, uh, to go into the state legislatures because whoever controls the state legislature will go ahead and and um, and uh, you know have an impact on state reps, Senate, and of course uh, state Senate, of course uh, members of Congress. I mean, I, I remember I've seen. I was a House member where we did redistricting when the Democrats were in the majority. I was a Secretary of State just watching when they were doing redistricting here in the state of Texas. And now I'm getting the, the, the effect of when members of, of the state legis, uh, legislative body draw the lines. So it is, and, it, and it's interesting how lines are drawn. Uh, and it's interesting how it goes all the way up to the Supreme Court and what sort of impact uh, a new Supreme Court could have uh, uh, as we see after the election. But what we're seeing is very, very safe seats. Uh, the number of blue dogs, I'm a Democrat, middle of the road uh, Democrat, uh, and what we're seeing is a lot of us are gone because you got very, very liberal progressive seats uh, and the fight is always in the primary or in the Republican side. The fight is maybe not November, except for the District 23rd here in Texas. But the fights are in the primary, and that's where we're seeing the fights are in the primary. So people have a tendency of going far left or far right uh, on this. And therefore, what we're seeing now is members of Congress, and I say this with all due respect to all the, uh, my colleagues in Washington, uh, a lot of them go up there and ask one question. What does my party want me to do on this vote, whether it's the Republican Party or the Democratic Party? And if you decide to be independent on, or, or vote on the merits, you're gonna be slapped. I've seen that on the Republican side, and that happened to me as a freshman uh, when I come in. They leave me alone now, uh, and, but I see that where the parties, uh, where the party caucuses on both the D's and R's will discipline members to stick, and therefore, if you have to answer one question, what does my party need, uh, want me to do on this vote, then it doesn't matter who gets elected. Uh, everybody talks about being bipartisan. But the moment they go on the House floor or on the Senate floor, that goes out. Then sure. the party comes into play, uh, and then people are disciplined for not falling uh, in line with the, with the party. And that's one of the things that I see uh, that actually brings me a lot of frustration because everybody talks about being bipartisan, but they're disciplining you behind closed doors or in, or in other ways. Uh, and like I said, that happened to me my freshman year. Now they leave me alone, I vote my district. I vote for Nancy Pelosi my first year, uh, my first vote, and after that, I vote my district. The party's not gonna tell me how to vote, and I vote, and some people get a little upset about that, and think you, I don't know if you read a story about that, but I'm here to vote, like LBJ said, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a, an American first, I'm a Texan, no, he said I'm a Texan first, and then an American, and then a Democrat, but if you go up there and put party first, 
then you can send anybody up there and, and we're gonna continue having this type of gridlock and that's wrong. What does discipline mean? Discipline means uh, um, in many ways, you know, they, they'll <laughs> come in and talk to you. Uh, they'll talk about indirectly committee assignments mm -hmm. uh, and in different ways. And like I said, uh, I do my part. I mean, I'm the first Democrat. I pay my dues. I'm the first Democrat. Pay what all my dues, dues at one time dues. Members of Congress have to pay dues to the Republican caucus and the Democratic or D Trump as they are the Republican. Uh, you know, that's one thing. So I pay that. And after that, I vote my district. Uh, and, and so I'm a good Democrat. But then at the same time, I'm a member of Congress, not a, you know, even though I'm a Democrat, but I, again, I go up there. Some people complain about my votes, but I will go and vote my district and not my party as a Democrat. Could I bring up about how sometimes when you're voting against your party, you come over and hide out with us Texans on our side of the aisle? Yeah, I, I go up there and try to explain. <laughs> he comes to us for protection. I, I, go, I, I go up there and explain to them that we got to be bipartisan in many ways. Mr. Yeah. Castro, you want to weigh in? Uh, yeah, well, first, I think one of our colleagues walked in, Phil Vela, I saw come in here. I Where think, is uh, Phil Vela? South Texas, Brownsville. He was oh, here. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, He's hiding. there's basically two large parts to the job. Uh, the first, I mean, one part is the legislation, and I think that's what we've been griping about, is that you haven't seen a lot of productivity in terms of legislation. The other big part of the job is the constituent services. Uh, I, I represent the main San Antonio district, District 20, that was once represented by Henry B. Gonzalez, who in South Texas was a very iconic uh, congressman representing mostly the deep west side of San Antonio and downtown. But he really built his reputation and his good name by making sure that when somebody called, there was somebody there to pick up the phone in his office and serve the people that he represented. So I, would, I, would, I think you guys would agree that some of the most satisfaction you get from this job is knowing that you help people, sure. that people reach out to you for help for VA benefits, uh, you know, when we've had a chance to award medals or place medals on World War II veterans, Vietnam veterans, all of the constituent services work that we do is actually very satisfying. And I think that keeps you, that sometimes keeps you going when the legislative process is not going well, when it's, when it's broken down. Um, but if you look at the Congress systemically, you know, I wrote a piece for Texas Monthly, I guess a few years ago now, about my first year in Congress, and I served 10 years in the state legislature. Henry, you served a bunch, and you jumped straight to Congress, right? But the Congress is basically built for fighting. It's basically built to pit people of the two parties against each other. Uh, everything about it is essentially built for fighting, right? So if you notice, if you watch on C-SPAN, Democrats sit on one side of the chamber in the House of Representatives, and Republicans sit on the other side of the chamber. It's the same thing if you go to the committee room, right? Yeah. Republicans sit on one side and Democrats sit on another side. Uh, in the Texas legislature, you don't have any of that, right? Everybody's mixed up. The seating assignments aren't predetermined by party or even by seniority. In fact, in Congress, one of the other things that affects us is that there's not a permanent seating assignment. If you watch C-SPAN, you'll notice that people are on different seats all the time. Whereas if you go to the Texas legislature, you have an assigned seat. That means you're sitting next to somebody uh, the whole time, you know, for the whole session. Uh, another, another thing that makes a difference is that in the legislature, votes are taken essentially ad hoc, right? You'll see the debate going back and forth from the front mic and the back mic, and then a vote is taken after the debate's over. Everybody stays on the floor, and then you take another one in 10 minutes after that. In the Congress, you essentially have all the votes clustered together, so you'll only have, say, 10 people on the floor for the debate, 
if they have a bill or an amendment up. And then once the bell rings, you'll go take five votes in a row for 30 minutes, and then everybody goes away for the day. Right? So it's a very different system. Um, I mean, there's, so in that sense, the legislature is a much friendlier system, much more bipartisan system. Democrats who are in the deep minority in the legislature now still chair several committees in the state legislature. Uh, of course, the majority party at this time, Republicans in the Congress, chair all the committees in Washington. There are disadvantages to the, to the system in Texas, especially if you're in the minority party. Uh, I think that it essentially neuters strong opposition. Um, that's, why, that's part of the reason I've argued that Democrats haven't been competitive in 20 years, uh, because it allows, the system in Texas essentially allows the House Speaker and the Lieutenant Governor to co-opt a number of people from the other party and essentially neuter some of the opposition. Uh, that was true when Democrats were in control. I think that's part of the reason that, in addition to gerrymandering, that Republicans didn't take over the Texas legislature well into the Bush years. I mean, they didn't take over until George W. Bush had become president, right? Uh, so, but it's fascinating to me to see these major differences in the systems and how they impact the legislation that's produced, the tone that's produced, uh, but also the interaction really between the parties. Yeah, I mean, let me ask something uh, that, that I think uh, yeah. Mr. Costa was so correct the way the system is. I got elected in 2004. So I go for right after you get elected, you get a letter and say, hey, come in and get the training, the preorientation. Right. I, I remember there was a class there, our class there, DNRs. They, they talked to us, welcome to the, uh, uh, soon to, to the Congress. Uh, now we're going to go out for some training. So there were some buses out there. Uh, at, I think it was at the Hyatt. So we, we go up there, go take, and I remember there's two buses, so I, I'm getting in the first one, and I remember some gentleman said, I'm sorry, this is the Republican bus. Yeah. The Democrats are over here. So from the moment you get there, they separate you. So you're not even a member of Congress, you're a member-elect, and they separate you there. Right. And, and from the very beginning, that's where the system is set up, and so you can understand what happens once we're there for a while. Can I give my one critique, my one of my critiques of the Texas legislature? <laughs> Remember I mentioned that the system in Texas is obviously different. One of the reasons I think that it neuters the minority party is because in Texas, for example, the Speaker of the House, who's of course Republican right now, uh, Joe Strauss, makes all of the committee assignments for everybody, for Republicans and Democrats. So think about what that does in a workplace, right? Who you become loyal to, essentially is not, not your party, but essentially to, to the speaker from the other party. In Congress, the assignments are made by, Paul Ryan makes the Republican assignments, and, and Nancy Pelosi makes the Democratic assignments. So I think you can structure, what I'm saying is that you structure very different outcomes uh, by how you arrange those things. Uh, and I certainly don't think that the Washington system is an ideal one. Like I said, I think it's built for fighting. But I also think that the Texas system while it's produced more bipartisanship, uh, it also tends to essentially take out some of, the some of the stronger opposition from the minority party. I do have a couple of comments. So you've heard comments about productivity and fighting, but if you, if you go back and look at the Constitution, our founders, it, they, they developed a three-branch system and they did that on purpose so that, they, so that to the extent laws were passed, that they were well thought out. I mean, that's the reason there's even differences in the speed and the efficiency of the House and the Senate. Uh, so that's what our founders intended. They didn't intend for us to just go out there and rip out a bunch of legislation 
and uh, send it out to the real world. And so sometimes you don't want your Congress to move very fast unless there's some critical issue that needs to be addressed. So I, I don't know that productivity is necessarily, low to productivity is necessarily a bad thing. Uh, you had a lot of productivity in 2009, 2010. A lot of people don't like the things that were passed during that time period. So just, just be aware of that. So I play in a charity softball game every summer. Yeah. Press versus members of Congress, all females. Uh -huh. uh, and it's absolutely fascinating from a reporting background um, because the other team is bipartisan. And they practice before work, 7 a.m., and the rule is you can't talk politics. So you have Senator Shelley Moore Capito, Republican of West Virginia, playing next to Sherry Bustos, Democrat from uh, Illinois, uh, at shortstop and third base every morning. Is there anything else where members do that? Is there any sort of force interaction? Is it Codell's? Codell's. And, the, and Codell's, Codell is yeah. a trip yeah. overseas, a congressional delegation trip. Is that? Well, I, I, candidly, I think one of the biggest impediments to bipartisanship is the jet airplane. Because our constituents want to see us at home. And so every Friday or Thursday, you're going to see the three of us on a plane headed back to Texas. And so in the old days, before the advent of faster transportation, we would have been living in Washington and our kids would have been playing softball or, or baseball together or hockey or whatever. And so we'd be at picnics together and that's all gone today because we're all you know, trying to get back to our hometowns or to our home districts uh, to stay in front of our constituents. So that's, that's one of the challenges. Uh, there are, the Codells, I think, are an example. I mean, Joaquin was, said that, I think that's an example. And every now and then, there'll be a special project of some kind. We'll have a special committee uh, to go look at, at uh, when we had the big influx of, uh, of kids coming across the border. And that was really you that, were, that initiated myself. that. It was and that was a, John Cornyn, yeah. bipartisan, and Democrats were saying, why are you doing, working with that Republican? And Cornyn would tell me that he was asked, why are you working with, you know, vice versa? And, and that's what we're yeah. talking about. Big issues, we can do it bipartisan, but the mm -hmm. system comes in. You're right, there's, there's about three or four things that, that I think has changed Congress. One is the airplane, because in the old days, you travel by horse, buggy, you stayed there for a long time because you're not gonna be riding that buggy back to Texas. So now with an airplane, people are expecting it. In fact, there's times where people will say, uh, let's say in Roma, Texas, or in Mission, or in Tilden, Congressman, I haven't seen you for a while. I said, well, I'm not a city councilman. I'm a member of Congress. I work in Washington, D.C., but they still expect you down there. That's right. So one is the, the, the uh, airplane. The second thing has been uh, the cameras on the floor. In the past, people used to talk to each other. I remember when the, when the Democrats were in charge, I was in the House as the Speaker for Temple Lot, so I got to see body language and everything. And I remember there was a, a lady who ran for president. She's not there anymore. Uh, and, and she came in and said, Mr. Speaker, I recognized her. After that, she didn't look at me. All she did was look over here, because there was a camera over here, or looked over here, because there was another camera over here, and now people talk outside and not talk to each other in the house. The, the third thing is the, the record votes that are seen. Record votes now, in the, in the, in the old days, you would have this, uh, you know, voice votes that would come in. Now there's record votes uh, and, and, and committees to show the other side how bad they are. Yeah. I voted on guns so many times on appropriation. I voted so many times on abortion so many times. I voted on name all the social issues, not once, but two or three times, because there's a record vote, record vote 
and, and, and Democrats do that to Republicans. Republicans used to do that to Democrats. Yeah. Finally, the, the, that's number three. Number four is the low window so we have a bipartisanship. What happens? You'll see this. We'll have a presidential. Right now, everybody's fighting. After this, all right, let's get together. Let's be bipartisan. There's a window to address uh, the issues because January till July, the end of July, August break comes in after that, you start thinking about what? Midterm elections. And then after that, you got the next set of presidential election. So there's low windows to get things done. Uh, otherwise, you lose those windows. The last time we had a window as an example, April, I'll still remember this, April of 2009. We went, Hispanic Caucus, we went to go see President Barack Obama. And we said, uh, we, uh, we want to, immigration, you said you're going to be supporting immigration. He said, well, we got healthcare, we got a little financial crisis, we got this, we'll get to healthcare and all this. Remember at that time, Democrat president, we controlled the House and we controlled the Senate. At one time we had 60 votes before uh, Senator Kennedy died. So we controlled the House and the Senate and we weren't able to pass immigration because other issues, uh, priorities came up. So there was a window and after that, everything closed on that. So it's the airplane, as you mentioned, it's the, uh, the TV where now they're speaking outside and not talking to each other. It's this record votes, they're done just messaging. They're done for messaging purposes. Uh, and finally, this, you know, the, the last thing I mentioned also, those are the things that just make it very frustrating to be a member of Congress. But yeah, I'm an optimist, we're gonna get things done. If I done. can chime in for a minute on the record votes. We have a procedural vote called a motion to recommit. And I didn't say this at the beginning. This is one of the things I think is broken with Congress because these motions to recommit are used to politicize a vote. They're used totally for political purposes. When the Republicans were in the minority, they used it against the Democrats. Now that the, uh, the uh, Democrats are in the minority, they use it against Republicans. Now what is an MTR? An MTR says, okay, we've got this perfectly good bill that's gonna pass on a bipartisan basis, but then the, the minority party always gets one last shot at it. It says, okay, we want you to you vote to refer that committee back to, that, that, that legislation back to the committee, but you strip out the part where we're gonna euthanize kitty cats. You think I'm joking. Okay, that's all it does. And so we as the majority party always vote no. So that's essentially a vote to euthanize kitty cats. And then so on my Sunday paper, I see people are all upset because I euthanize kitty cats. You know, and so what I'd like to see, I don't, and I don't know if these guys would agree with it, but I'd like to see the MTR stripped out because they politicize every vote on, on, on even pieces of bipartisan legislation. And that's one of the, the key record votes that that uh, Henry was talking about. Mr. Castro? Well, I mean, I think on that, if you did away with the MTRs, you'd have to open up the amendments process or something. I think that's another advantage in the legislature is that there were hardly, in, in floor debate, you set rules on which amendments are gonna be acceptable to debate and which aren't. So you can essentially make it an open process. In other words, you could say, here's this, this bill, whoever wants to offer an amendment of any kind, go ahead or you can start to set rules and boundaries about which amendments exactly will be allowed to have a vote on. So right now, the system is a fairly closed one, right? Uh, I only got there in 2013, so I assume it was closed before too, but it's a fairly closed one. So the MTR is meant to give the minority party an opportunity to put forward its version of the bill. Um, so, I mean, obviously not to say there's no politics around that, but it, it has a place in the system. Uh, but the other thing I would add is, 
one of the other one of the other things that keeps people from really forming stronger bonds, even with intra-party and, and inter-party, is that we're only in session this year for about 110 days or something, 115 days. Less days than the state legislature. Wow. Yeah, yeah so, you know, so uh, people ask me, for example, my wife and my two kids, I have a two and a half year old daughter and a seven and a half month old son, people often ask me, does your family live in Washington or are you gonna move your family up to Washington? Well, I'm only there about 110 days a year, right? So I'm, I'm at home or on the road for another reason as much as I'm in Washington, right? So I think that keeps people, keeps people's families back home and so it keeps them going back home. And if he did, there would be a television ad in his primary saying he sends his kids to DC schools. Yeah. Right. He is not right. a real San Antonio citizen. And yeah, so they'll, they'll have pictures of your house and everything like that. Yeah. I, I do want to give you one high note on this. Uh, and that has to do with the Texas delegation. There are 38 members of Congress for the second largest delegation in Congress. And when it comes to a Texas issue, we all pull together. And this is something that started when, when Kay Bailey Hutchison was senator and she called it Team Texas. So if there's an issue specific to Texas, whether you're D or R, you're usually on the same page in terms of putting Texas first to get something done. So I do want to say that not everything is this, this bickering bipartisanship that, that uh, the rest of the world seems to see. We do work together as a team. We're almost one year into the Paul Ryan era. What, how is that going? And any one of you all can weigh in. And um, does he have a very difficult year ahead of him? How about you, Mr. Flores, a Republican? Oh, I wanted to go last. So <laughs> let me say this. I think um, you're, you're being recorded, so go yeah. ahead. Oh, I know, I know. <laughs> so, yeah, the speaker's going to see this. Yeah, the speaker's yeah. going to see this. Hi, Paul. <laughs> so, actually, I'll, I'll say this. You're going to see the very diplomatic answer. Well, uh, well <laughs> let, me, let me give credit to, to Paul Ryan on many things. Paul has tried to be very open and very transparent. He has tried to be very careful in setting expectations, particularly on my side of the aisle. So, I mean, one of the challenges we had in my first two terms in Congress is that we as conservatives would set a really high, uh, high bar for what we wanted to get done, but then we'd run into that, that place where all things go to die, and that's the Senate. And so, you know, we would dump 600 pieces of legislation over other Senate, and they'd go right straight into the trash can. And so, Paul has been very careful to let us know, okay, this is the, probably the best we can get done, so you set expect, expectations at the right level, and then hopefully you overachieve on that. So, he's been open, he's been transparent. Uh, one of the things I like about what he's done is he's been very aspirational. So. If you talk to Americans today, they'll say about 70% of the population says we're going the wrong way. And so what we've worked on in the House is something called a better way. And in that, we, we address the things that are causing Americans to be frustrated today. National security, health care, their tax system, slow economic growth, uh, the fact that Congress can't seem to get anything done, uh, poverty, which is a huge issue. And so we, we came up with solutions to try to deal with each and every one of these things. And, and that's all because of the vision of Paul Ryan. Now, that's the kind of the happy face side. The, the, the other side is we're a hard group of people to work with. We really are. And so um, you've, got, you've, you've always got somebody say, well, I'm more conservative than you are, so I'm going to split off and I'm going to form another group and I'm going to block you on everything you do unless it's perfectly conservative. So that's made Paul's life 
a little difficult to deal with lately. That said, uh, I think he's been pretty good about walking through the minefield. He's avoided those so far. And I'm, I'm hoping our colleagues, well, my colleagues, especially on my side of the aisle, will uh, continue to give him the benefit. I mean, he's had a pretty good honeymoon with us so far. Hopefully that will continue. Yeah. I think I th if I can give the, uh, both of you give a Democratic perspective of Paul Ryan. Uh, same thing with Boehner and, and Paul Ryan. When the new class came in in 20, uh, 2010, it was very, very different. The, 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 the rise of the Tea Party folks came in. Uh, and, and, and what happened on that was that it made it, especially now the Republicans, uh, and again, I said this with all due respect to my good friend Bill, they have the largest uh, majority they've had for many years, but in getting certain things done, they can't do it because the fighting sometimes is not with the Democrats, it's with, with their own Republican uh, folks in there. Let me give you an example. Uh, TPA, t uh, the, you know, the Trade Promotion Authority, I supported that. There were 28 Democrats that came in. What the Tea Party decided to do was there is the procedure rules uh, on the rules. There's a rule that you got to pass that usually, I mean, most of the time, Republicans will vote uh, for it. If it's a rule, Democrats will vote no. Mm -hmm. Tea Party folks decided to come in and say, the way we're going to kill TPA uh, is by voting no on the rule. So if you have 30, 40 Tea Party folks that vote on it, you're not going to get a 218. So then we, talking to Steve Scalise and talking to... Here's the uh, majority uh, whip. Yeah, the, the whip and, and uh, Patrick also. Yeah, Patrick uh, you know, they, they said, hey, we might need some help on the rule. I said, what do you mean on the rule? That's a Republican rule. You guys have it. Well, we got Tea Party folks. This is another one of those procedural yeah, votes. Yeah, procedural votes yeah. on that. But if you don't pass that, you never get to the bill. Right. So there were eight Democrats that had to vote on it with the Republicans to, to, to make sure that TPA stayed. It's rare that you get on the procedure because we stay on the D, we get it. But for the greater good, uh, you know, we did that to get TPA done. Uh, as I walked back, we'll mention a, a Democratic friend. He says, what are you doing voting with those darn Republicans? I said, no. I was actually voting for President Obama to make sure that his uh, agenda keeps uh, moving forward on this. But it, I say this because the Boehner had a very hard time. Uh, and, 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 and just to show you, on some of the appropriation bills that we passed, there were times where only 87 Republicans would vote on the appropriation bill and then the rest would vote no, and then the minority, the Democrats, would put it. So 87, and I still remember that number, 87 Republicans out of the majority, they controlled the House, were voting on it, and then it was the rest of the Democrats that were coming in. Same thing with uh, Paul Ryan. I know Paul Ryan uh, uh, used to do P90X uh, with him, but <laughs> 6 o'clock in the morning was too it's early for while, me because it's 5 o'clock Texas time. He's a, he's a good man. But I think his difficulty is going to come in. How does he deal with the with the uh, with the Tea Party folks? And the big challenge is going to come in. What does he do with the appropriation bill? Uh, because I think that will have an impact when the first vote comes in at the beginning of next year. Is will they vote for him uh, on uh, for Speaker of the House? So he, he's in a difficult situation. Uh, and, and 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 then give you the Democrat side. Say whatever you want to say about Nancy Pelosi. But we pretty much stuck with her when she was the speaker, and we got things done. We didn't have to go and depend uh, on somebody else to get it done because 
The problem that we're seeing is the majority of the majority rule. Everybody familiar with the majority? It says that whoever's in charge has to have the majority of its own caucus to get things done. Well, if you got a small group of folks that are very conservative and say, we're not going to do that, then what the majority has to do is they have to move their bill to the far right, send it over to the Senate, Senate moderates it, comes over, then we vote on it, and then a lot of the Republicans will fall off and not vote for it, and the majority of the votes are Democrats. Get it? Well, we're the minority, and that's what makes it hard. I wish it was just like on the House floor. What is it? At Texas House, I assume it's still the same. The majority, whatever numbers, these and ours, you know, 150, you get 76 votes to get it done. Over there, the rule is you got to get the majority of the Republicans to get it done. But if you got those Tea Party folks, makes it very, very, very difficult. I'll give you this last example. I thought it was funny. Sitting on the other side with the Republicans, I was over there. He was over there for protection. I was he does there, that a lot. I, yeah. I was over there on the, with a Republican. I was with the Republicans over there sitting down. And the, you know, they had told, the Tea Party folks said, well, uh, Paul, you know, we're going to support you, but you need to open up the system because we don't like the way Boehner was running this show. So the, there was a bill coming up. Uh, it was Bill Schuster's highway bill. In there was the bill dealing with the Import-Export Bank, which I support. Well, the Tea Party folks don't like the Import-Export Bank. So what they did is they opened up the system, and there were all these bad amendments, quote, coming in. And it was interesting because the Republicans were screaming because not of an amendment from the Democrats, but from their own Tea Party folks. And they were saying, well, you know, we need to go back to the closed system because this open system is putting us in a very difficult situation. So I would say either you have an open system and you take the good and the bad with it, or you close it and then it makes it difficult for the minority to have a say so. That's what I was talking about at the very in my very first answer is that uh, sometimes my side of the aisle is look, you've got elements of my party that are looking for perfect. Perfect is not achievable in the system that our founders designed in the Constitution. And as a result of that, we tend to have more intra-party fighting on my side. And since we're less unified, I think we wind up with a poor legislative outcome uh, coming out of my side versus if we could find a way to work together, uh, I believe that you would have better solutions and come out that candidly would probably be more likely to pass the Senate. It is now audience question time. So we have Mike there and there. And uh, we will start on this side because the line's starting to look longer there. Holy Hi, thank you for shadows. taking the time to talk with us today. My name's Crystal Hayslip. I currently work in Austin as an occupational therapist and I serve in Austin and the surrounding areas. A lot of the families that I work with have a really hard time and are unable to attain medical services for loved ones or report horrific crimes due to the fear of deportation. Uh, my question is for all three of you. Hillary Clinton has said that if elected, she will make passing um, immigration, common sense immigration reform a priority in the first 100 days. Are each one of you willing to act bipartisanly and go against the parties if the House continues to be in Republican control? Let me start by answering that since I am the Republican and we are in control. Uh, I think if you... If no, you, she was talking about next year. <laughs> I'm just kidding, go ahead. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding, just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. You want to make a bet? We love well, each we other. We make a bet real quick, okay. Anyway, um, 
if you aren't my friend. <laughs> Let me say this. Um, the, the words comprehensive immigration reform are uh, something that stir passion on both sides of the aisle. Uh, and because of that, it makes it hard to do something when you take it all and put it together in one big bill. Uh, you've, I've got a few folks on my side of the aisle, not me, that when they hear the word um, immigration reform, they yell amnesty at the top of their lungs, including a couple of Texans. And that chills the conversation. Uh, on the other hand, when other people hear immigration reform, they think, okay, quick citizenship for folks that committed an illegal act. And that chills the conversation. And so I think what's the, the most likely thing, the best thing that we could do is break um, immigration down into sort of five pieces. One is, let's get the border secured. The second thing is, let's, let's uh, deal with the folks that come here legally, but then overstay their visa. We, so we need some sort of a visa entry and exit tracking system, and then uh, an enforcement system for that. Then, the biggest reason we have illegal immigration is because our legal immigration system is broken. And so our, our legal visa, go ahead. So the, the legal visa system ought to be set for what we need. What sort of people do we, do we want to come to the country? Uh, and uh, you know, what, what, sort of, uh, what sort of jobs are we looking to fill? Look, I represent uh, the high tech part of Austin, up in the north part of Austin. They would hire every PhD out of UT and A&M and better that they could get their hands on. But the problem is all, most of those folks aren't Americans. And so why don't we have a high tech visa system and if you, if you come in and you want to go to work for IBM, we give you a visa and you go to work and you stay here and you become a taxpayer. So let's fix the legal immigration system. And then you've got the hot button issue. You've got well, two hot button issues. You've got 11 million people that are here illegally, give or take whatever the number is. And then you've got their offspring, their kids, their dreamers. And so this is going to sound weird coming from a Republican, but my district is fine with a path to earn legal status. My district, with respect to the Dreamers, my district is fine with a path to earn citizenship. <laughs> the challenge, though, goes back to when you start those discussions and you have a couple of people get up and yell amnesty, it just chills the conversation. I wish we could get past that, that sort of that visceral reaction, because if we can, maybe we can start it. And so, I, again, I think the, here's what I propose to people when they come and talk about it. Let's do border security. Let's do the visa system. Let's, do, uh, let's start with something easy like a high-tech visa, uh, then maybe an ag visa. And then they say, okay, that didn't hurt too bad. It may be a construction visa. Uh, and then after that, it gets easier to do those. And then we go tackle the two hard issues about the folks that are here illegally and then the, their dreamers. I, I support immigration reform, and I want to see all of it at one time. Uh, border security, sensible border security, no wall. A wall is a 14th century solution to a 21st century problem that we have. By the way, I agree uh, with you on and, that. So. And, um, and, and, you know, but we got to make sure that we don't keep moving the, the goalposts on border security. Border security, you know, a lot of people talk about the border being very insecure, but if you look at it, look at FBI statistics. The FBI statistics will show that border, uh, border crime rate, murder, assaults, rapes, lower than a national crime rate. In fact, in Laredo, three murders per 100,000. Uh, when I go to Washington, D.C., it's about almost 16 murders. Yeah. So the most dangerous thing for me to do is to go to Washington to go work up there because the murders are you know, five times higher in Washington, D.C. So there's a lot of misconceptions. So we can't move this 
security over, uh, you know, we keep moving the goalposts on, on border security. A guest worker plan that works uh, well. And then the third thing is, what do we do about the 11 or 12 million undocumented aliens? I don't believe in amnesty. President Reagan and the Democrats did amnesty in 1986. That's amnesty. But you can have a earned citizenship uh, a process in place, uh, or you can have a legalization so we know who's in our country right. and let the legal system in place, whatever's in place, make them citizen. There's a lot of ways that you can do as long as you don't put any bars. You can do this. The Senate, since I've been in Congress, has passed two immigration bills. First time the House took this up, what, did the House, what was the House response? Put a 700-mile border uh, wall uh, and then make it a felony if you dig a tunnel under an international wall. That was the response of the House. The second time it came over here a couple years ago, the Speaker at that time said, well, I don't know, the votes are there. Well, darn it, put it for a vote and let the House vote it. But you can't say there are the votes are not there. We would have been able to get 18 Republicans to vote for an immigration bill if the vote uh, would have been put there. So what we need to do on, border, uh, on, 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 on immigration reform is understand it is emotional. We understand that because in, if you remember the history of the United States, it was, it was the uh, Irish, it was the Germans, it was the Chinese, it's the Hispanics now. Uh, and we just gotta be smart on how we do. I agree with you. If you anybody read the wor the wor the book uh, by Thomas Friedman, "The World Is Flat," yeah. sure. right? Yeah. What does he say? If you give uh, this PH this uh, students that graduate with PhDs in engineering from all over the world, what do we do? Uh, we send them off, and then they become our competitors. What we ought to do is we give them the the, the certificate when they graduate, and then give them a green card so they can be part of our uh, country here exactly to make right. sure. That we're, there's a lot of ways to do this, but we let emotions and we let fear. There's no amnesty on earned citizenship, but that's the way to scare members of Congress and yeah. senators, and that's what happened. I'll say this, uh, maybe I shouldn't say it, but I'll say this. When the Republican caucus, when Boehner was there, and I got this from one of uh, Texas uh, Republicans, um, he was actually was the one working on the DREAM Act. And I said, darn, can I see this? And I looked at it. We were just a, maybe one or two inches apart. A Republican from Texas was writing the part on the DREAM Act. So Speaker Boehner had hired Becky Talent, mm -hmm. uh, who had worked with McCain on immigration. Remember, McCain was very good on immigration before he got primary. Uh, and so what happened? I said, everything's placed. They're going to go in. They're going to go and talk. Then what happened on the way to your retreat, and this is from a Republican member of House, uh, some senator yep. from here, yep. I won't say his name, um, uh, who has a conscience, uh, <laughs> what, what happened oh. was he said, amnesty, it is amnesty. Yeah, I can interrupt this, but I saw, I mean, I was reading my, my uh, at that time, a Blackburn, and I thought, Oh crud! There was that discussion. So all, yeah, all the calls were coming in to, mm -hmm. to 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 get the the Republicans. So they were about to do immigration reform at the retreat and talk about it. And then somebody says amnesty, and it all falls off. Yep. It, it's amazing. It's you know we gotta you know we're set up there not to do the easy thing in Congress. And darn it, 
If you got to have a little fortitude and make some people pissed off, do what's right for the country. And then at the end, if you can't explain your vote, you got a problem. If you can't explain your vote on that. Yeah. Mr. Castro, do you want to weigh in? Uh, just that I, I support comprehensive immigration reform. I think the two uh, foundations of it will be border security and a path to citizenship. That's what was in the Senate bill a yeah. few years ago. It would have passed if the Speaker had put it on the House floor for a vote, but because of the Hastert rule, which Henry explained, uh, it never got a vote. Uh, there were about, at that time, between 225 and 230 people that would have voted for it. So I support it. So I just want to flush. It's the majority of the majority. It's also called the Hastert rule, although that name's being phased they out. Need to um, rename that one. <laughs> and it's basically the speaker does not want to have a bill, and I'm saying speaker in a theoretical. If you're a Republican, you don't want to put on the floor over and over legislation that's mostly passed by Democrats because that makes you vulnerable as a speaker. Over half of your caucus would be mad at you and theoretically could vote you out. And so that's kind of the the theory, at least as I best understand it, but let's go over here. Thank you. Would you please talk about the pressures of fundraising and how it gets in the way of focusing on public policy? How bad is that problem? Um, may I set up one thing with this? My favorite part of a reporter, of being a reporter each month, and this is going to make the Democrats blush, but, um, and the Republicans don't do this, but the Democrats put out a spreadsheet, and it shows how much each per member has raised to help the DCCC, the Democratic Fundraising. <laughs> and it's interesting to me, because if you are a good fundraiser, you're a team player. Now the Republicans, uh, one time I snuck in in their headquarters, they don't do a spreadsheet, but they, I was already in the headquarters, but I snuck into the hallway where they have like a golf leaderboard. Yeah. And everybody's name That's is true. on it, and everybody can see who helps and who doesn't. Yeah. And you're a team player or you're not. Yeah. And it's hundreds of thousands of dollars, and it depends on what committee you're on, how senior you are. And um, all of these guys are, they support their team. And they are team players, and this is part of why they're respected, is that they uh, go out and donate money to people on their team. and there's a lot of time spent, so, and so setting the table. Uh, I would say that in terms of the pressures of fundraising and how much time it's taking from your focus on policy and legislation and the other parts of your job or the official parts of your job, uh, to me it really depends on what kind of district you're in uh, or if there's something you're trying to achieve within leadership, for example. So there are about 10% of districts in Congress that are competitive districts, probably about 7% or less that are actual 50-50 or you know, within a really close margin. The 23rd District of Texas, for example, is one of those. If you're in one of those districts, your existence in Congress is dominated by the need to raise money. It's really dominated by fundraising uh, and the need to get on the phone every day and basically exist in these boiler rooms at the, at the RNCC and at the DCCC and raise money for your reelection uh, you know, to come back to Congress. If you're not in one of those districts, then you have much more flexibility. Uh, fundraising doesn't necessarily dominate your day the way it does for Will Hurd right now and Pete Gallego before that. Uh, it can if you want it to, but for most people it gives you more flexibility to really focus on the policy. Uh, I would say except for certain episodes. For example, if, if you're a congressman, you're going to run for governor, you're going to run for senator, uh, then, there's gonna, then obviously you're going to be in that call room a lot because you're getting ready for that next election. Uh, but if you're up for re-election and you don't have an opponent from the other party, a Democrat or Republican, then you're probably not going to see somebody like that in that boiler room, you know, for five hours a day. They're going to be doing other stuff. 
Mr. Flores? Let me say this. Uh, how many of you saw the David Jolly uh, piece on 60 Minutes? That, that's actually not true. I just want to let you know. David Jolly was running for Senate. He was having a hard time raising money, and so he had to find some way to get name ID. Look, when you're a member of Congress, you kind of have to, there's four, sort of four parts to your life. You've got the official part where you're voting and you're doing the casework like Joaquin talked about. Uh, you've got the political part where you're running for re-election. You've got the fundraising part. And then you've got a family life of some sort. If you let any one of those get out of balance, then you're likely to lose your job. And so fundraising is an important part of the job, but it's not all-consuming. It's not like uh, you see uh, from, from some folks on the outside that we spend all our time raising money. Um, I, I do want to say something that runs a little bit counter to what Joaquin said. When you look at Will Hurt's district, District 23, for instance, he has to raise a lot of money, but one of the things is when you're, when you're in a competitive district, it's easier to raise money because both sides are sending the money to you more or less on autopilot. Doesn't mean he doesn't have to work for it. Doesn't mean the two candidates don't have to work for it, but because it's competitive and somebody wants, each party wants to shift it or protect it, uh, the money comes in more easily. So I, I'd say it's, it's, uh, it's something you have to pay attention to, but it's not an all-consuming part of my responsibility as being a member of Congress today. I, I see my role in Congress in a dual track. Uh, and one, I look at the uh, national work I have to do, issues, uh, international issues, national issues that have to come up. And part of it, you know, on the side, on the political part, uh, raising funds. Uh, the last couple of elections, I was uh, raising, giving dues uh, over a million dollars uh, on that. This year, I decided to let other members uh, take over, and uh, I'm just going to pay my dues and and uh, and do uh, do my job. So one is, you know, I very independent uh, voter. Uh, I mean, voter in Washington, but I. Team player, I pay my dues. Like I said, I'm always the first Democrat uh, to pay my dues uh, in full. Uh, and then I move on. And then after that, it's I, I do what I need to do as a member of Congress, dual one, uh, track one. Track two is I, uh, I represent, I'm a member of Congress, but I act like if I'm a mayor. By a mayor is I look at in my district, uh, for example, I have office, hour, office hours in every single city in my district. For the last 12 years, we go out to every community. Once a month, we're in every community, uh, so people don't have to look for me in San Antonio, Laredo, uh, Rio Grande City, or in Mission. We go out to every single, Tilden in McMullen County, Floresville, whatever, we're there every single time. So I run as a mayor in the sense that the issues that we talk about in Washington and I'm down there, no, they, they, those are the issues that are important. They're important in education. They're, they're, they're interested in education. They're interested in, in water. Uh, they're interested in education, health care, different type of issues. So we address those issues. And as a member of uh, Congress without earmarks, which I think we need to have earmarks because we gave all the power to the administration, but we're able to do certain things. We write, we help uh, get the grants done. Uh, so therefore, I see my job at the national level, but then I see my job as a mayor of each individual city that I represent. And, and, and people want to, you know, when they talk to you, you know, they're, sometimes they're interested in some of those issues, but they're interested in their local community, what's happening in their local community. Well, we are out of time. And so um, I just, everyone, please give them a round of applause. This is campaign season, it's a hard time to be here, and so we're very grateful. Yeah.